Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to HR Workbreak. I'm your host, Maddie Collins, editor of HR Daily Advisor. HR Workbreak takes a quick but close look at everything human resources. For any HR professional, it's a must listen. I hope you learned something new, take some advice to heart, or simply stay abreast today's trending topics. Now, it's time for a work break. Happy Friday and welcome to HR Work Break. Today, I'm joined by Melissa Danielson, CEO and co-founder of Joshin. Joshin is a support solution for employers that provides disability and neurodiverse coaching, training, and personalized navigation flex to meet each employee's needs, unlocking happier, healthier, and more engaged employees. Melissa, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Maddie. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. This is an exciting conversation. So I was looking through the Harvard Business Review, and it found that only about 4% of DEI programs include disability, even though the Employer Assistance and Resource Network on Disability Inclusion found that approximately 15 to 20% of the U.S. population is neurodivergent. So to kind of start off this conversation. My first question for you is, how are HR companies investing in support programs for neurodivergent workers or workers with visible or hidden disabilities? Yeah, that's a great question. And I really appreciate you grounding the discussion in that statistic. It's one we use a lot. You know, only 90% of companies actually have a DE&I plan and only 4% are really including disability or neurodivergence. And what we are seeing is a trend moving towards more intention around including neurodiversity and disability as part of those plans by a proactively, to point to your question, providing support. And so we have to look at that at a multi-dimensional way, right? So how are we supporting? And that goes to culture. It goes to manager training. Is there understanding and comfort in talking about disability and neurodivergence? Because there can be that understanding, but there has to be the comfort. And are we promoting self-ID across the organization? And when I say self-ID, I mean having a place for employees to self-disclose a disability or neurodivergent diagnosis. And one really great way we're seeing promotion of that in organizations is leaders talking about their personal experience, whether if they themselves identify as disabled or neurodivergent, or if they have experience with a loved one. And so that's a really powerful way that we're seeing a trend towards neurodiverse and disabled inclusion. Definitely. And speaking to that, I saw on Joshin's website that you and your sister formed the company in honor and memory of your brother. Would you want to like expand on that experience and kind of what led you to create this support system? Yeah, I will. I have to make sure I'm not long-winded because we're so passionate about our brother, Josh. This is what this show is about. Like, I love hearing people's passions, hearing the story behind the HR of everything, the human part of it, you know? The human part. And I think everything good comes from a human experience. And so Melanie and I are twin sisters, also co-founders of Joshin and previously a Medicaid organization. And we grew up like the one in five families across the country who have a loved one with disabilities. Josh was born with developmental disabilities, a pretty severe epilepsy disorder, so he would have a few different types of seizures a day. And then he acquired brain cancer a few times throughout his life. And oh, gosh. ultimately, he passed away at age 29, 14 years ago. And 
that was such a, you know, I would say one of the most defining personal moments for Melanie and I, because we felt the loss so deeply, you know, supporting Josh and being his sisters was the most prideful thing we did. And so we are carrying on his legacy by providing supports for individuals and families, but also to create radical inclusion across organizations and cultures. I mean, I can't go to a sporting event without seeing all the inaccessibility that's happening. You know, as allies, we should be the ones stepping forward and really pushing towards change, taking the emotional burden and labor off of disabled and neurodivergent people. And so when Josh passed away, Melanie and I left our careers to, first and foremost, we started a Medicaid organization that provided direct access to individuals, adults with disabilities, all different varying types, to live independently or in a home and community-based service homes. And so that experience over eight years really informed us that there was just a lot of work to do. And, you know, Medicaid is a big assistance program, but then we looked at, I think it's 30 states who still pay and it's still legal to pay individuals with disabilities sub-minimum wage. So for example, our brother worked for a hotel and he was paid $2 an hour to clean bathrooms and hotel rooms. You know, we knew that the next phase for us was really supporting organizational change. So access to income, to careers, you know, just fulfilled lives means, you know, we really have to look at it in different ways. And so this next phase with Josh and is really focusing on radically changing inclusion within organizations, putting that emotional burden on leadership that they should really be refining and redefining what inclusion looks like in their organization. Yeah. And and with that leadership aspect, whether it's them sharing their own experiences or their family's experiences and trying to make things more accessible across the board, what sort of tangible things can leaders do in addition to just creating that open communication and acceptance? Yeah, great question. And I think leaders can do this and all of us can, which is number one, self-educate you know, having access to resources on the experience of individuals with disabilities and neurodivergence, understanding that it wasn't until the 1990s that the ADA was passed. This is all very new still. We have a lot of work to do, creating small steps towards big change. And that does start with each one of us looking at language and how we talk about disability and neurodivergence. Are we using community preferences, right? As I'm talking right now, I'm very intentional in how I'm saying things because there are the right and wrong ways to say things. And that can continue to marginalize people if we don't advance in things like language and intention. And I would also say building programs for self-identification that are confidential, that allow individuals to self-identify and get the right type of support in a confidential, safe way. Part of what we do is create programs for neurodivergent, disability, people who self-ID, but also caregivers. We often see caregivers are also hiding the non-visible workload of, you know, supporting a loved one, which can be almost 30 hours a week more of caregiving responsibilities, whether that's doctor's appointments, researching. And so really being intentional in how inclusive your benefits are, how your talent acquisition teams look at applicants, making sure that there's not ableist views. And, you know, you and I are looking at each other. If somebody is not making eye contact, it doesn't mean they're not professional. Yeah. Those society rules that are in place today, sort of breaking those down when looking at candidates. So there's a lot of different ways, but I think starting with small steps is a way to make big change. Definitely. And I feel like it comes down to what you had started off saying, just educating yourself and then just instituting and spreading that education throughout your company, your policies and your culture. 
and everything. Exactly. Doing more than what's minimally expected of you. Because if we all ride at the minimum expectations of, let's say, the ADA, we are not going to advance. The ADA is just making sure that you have that button that opens the door, that you have minimum job accommodations available. But it doesn't necessarily mean there's opportunity for advancement. And so if you want to see radical inclusion, it means that you're going above and beyond what's minimally accepted of you and you're not riding the status quo. And when you do that, you will radically change your organization where candor, openness, vulnerability will translate into success individually and throughout the company. Definitely. Because like no one deserves to be operating at bare minimum. Like everyone deserves the support that they need. Exactly. But also any one of us can become disabled at any time. What would we want? You know, it's that like one aspect of like a minority part of the population that anyone could become at any point in time. And the disabled population is the world's largest minority group and the only one that anyone can join at any time. And I think it statistically, the, AA, the ARP, I can't remember what the exact statistic is, but it's by the age of 65, we will have each in, acquired some sort of disability at some point in our life. And so I think it's selfishly, you know, looking at how would I want to be treated if I was disabled? I was at a football game this weekend and we take for granted that I can hear the commentary, but can I read it? Right. So like, imagine you're watching the movie Coda. Put yourself in the shoes of other people, and then you'll start to look at the world differently because it could happen to any of us. And having that perspective, that empathy to see things from a different point of view is essential in any part of society, especially in leadership in the workplace. And everything I'm talking about is about the human experience. It's not necessarily just disability and neurodivergence. That's just the area that we're experts in, but apply this to everything, right? Yeah, definitely. Kind of in that aspect, we've touched a little bit about what leaders can do. You mentioned creating like a, a safe private way to, to self-identify. What other ways can HR build a more inclusive culture for those who are disabled or neurodivergent? Yeah, I think one area we see highly engaged within organizations is employee resource groups. So I think looking at how do you bring people together as a community on topics that they can share and support one another. And so a lot of organizations that we work with have disability ERG or neurodivergent ERG or caregiver ERGs, but they also have veterans and LGBTQ+, you know, different identity groups where you can really connect with others. And then to take it a step further, how do you bring different groups together within ERGs because there are intersectional identities as well. So I think ERGs is a big way that HR can do that and assigning a budget to it. You know, we often see a lot of unpaid volunteers in those organizations. They need access to a budget in order to bring in different speakers and educational topics. So that's one way. Taking a look at your benefit stack, right? And so, of course, we have health plans and 401ks and short-term, long-term disability. Those are really essential. But what are the ways that you're getting creative in making sure that everyone feels supported is a huge thing that HR can do. So I know surveys go out once or twice a year. Do you have questions about self-ID in there? Do you have questions about disability and neurodivergence or caregiver supports? You know, really looking at those ongoing things like annual surveys every year with a critical eye. Like there's new trends and topics that are, we're accessing more data. Are our practices keeping up with that? 
so that we allow for the space to understand people on a deeper level. Yeah. And like you said, having that open line of communication, those biannual or regular check-ins with people, that's helpful in case a family does become the one in five or if someone realizes they have a new diagnosis. Yeah. And the rise of more adults are being diagnosed with ADHD than children at this point. As more data and statistics come out, we as humans are reacting to that and responding. And I think we all want to evolve and learn more about ourselves. So our employer has to grow alongside us. Definitely. And like, I'm one of those people who got diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. Me too. I remember at one point I was telling my mom about it. I was like, yeah, like I can't remember to do anything unless I write it down. Like I struggled a lot with time blindness. Executive functioning skills. Exactly. And she was like, but you did so well. And I'm like, those are the coping mechanisms. But like, like we talked about earlier, you don't have to operate on the bare minimum. Like you can find support and find methods that kind of bring you up to speed. I was just diagnosed in the last few months, and so was Melanie, my twin sister. What's funny is we have two different types of ADHD. Oh, interesting, especially since y'all are twins. I mean, you're separate people, but still. I have hyperactivity, and hers, I can't remember exactly what it is, but they function two different ways, but that's why we're a good team, right? You support each other's weaknesses. Yep, and so, but since diagnosis is what I'm hearing from you is self-awareness, right? To be able to put words to things like the time blindness, like, you know, not understanding if I start a task, I'm going to get so into this task, I'm going to forget about everything else and I'm going to be late, right? That's huge. One way we support through our coaching is we have executive functioning skill coaches because what we have found is when you offer that support, awareness is built and techniques are also advancing your ability in your job, right? And so there's the time piece, there's, you know, bursts of energy and then needing to take breaks, being intentional. And so this is where employers should continue to look to keep up with, okay, there's a higher rate of ADHD diagnosis among adults. That's probably our workforce. What are we doing to support this? Obviously, medical plans is a huge piece of that, looking at that. And what are we approving diagnoses in our plan? I'm fortunate. Mine was covered. There's a lot of plans that are not covered and that'll deter people from getting diagnosed. And there is, you know, a thought process of getting diagnosed and not. There are some people who don't want to get diagnosed. And so making sure your benefits like ours, you can still enroll. You don't have to have a formal diagnosis. Understanding everybody has their own preferences, but making things available to everyone. Yeah. And there are ways that it benefits other people. Like sometimes I co-work with my friends in a cafe. I can't remember what the name of the method is, but you basically work for 45 minutes and then you take like a 510 break, just yep. absolutely throwing it out the window. And it instantly made me think of how so many people get like video and Zoom fatigue with remote work. Yep. No matter who it is, whether it's like a, an executive function or, or a time thing, like yes. you could very easily set up a work day that's beneficial to everyone's attention span and work output. Exactly. And it's the intention of meeting people where they're at and having that ability to do that. And so what you just talked about, depending on your employer, could be an accommodation request, right? So I need to set my workday so I can do this and I can perform at a higher level. The ADA doesn't cover those types of accommodations. That's where employers can look at their policies and understand where they might want to go above and beyond that. And that flexibility is something that I think any job seeker, any person is looking for. Yes. I know a couple of people where their work hours are so flexible and they know they're more productive at night. So they don't start work until like 10 a.m. Exactly. 
And that's why that was part of COVID, you know, having maybe more of a positive impact. We saw a rise in disabled employees being hired during COVID because of the ability to work remotely and having more flexibility. And so if we can pull one thing that's positive from COVID, it's the ability to, to see humans and understand that in order for people to bring their whole selves to work, you have to recognize that human part, that personal part, because it ultimately does impact the work productivity, the workplace, the culture. And so how can we continue to build on that, especially with the wave of return to office? How can employers be intentional about still allowing flexibility and not hindering people? Definitely. In regards to like remote and hybrid work and this push to return to the office, do you have any like best practices you could recommend to HR folks? Yeah, I think continuing to have open dialogue, promote that open dialogue, not losing flexibility. I understand that some in person can be very helpful, you know, but does it have to look the same for everybody, right? We're not the same. We don't function the same, but does it have to look the same for everybody? So I think continuing to be flexible, offer opportunities for conversation and making, you know, psychological safety a priority that employees can still bring their whole selves to work and talk about their needs without having a stigma attached. Definitely. And I think that sort of openness really brings about an overall effort to reduce burnout and create that inclusive company culture like we had talked about earlier. You know, control doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get the outcome you want. Trust is far more effective than having a chokehold on someone. Yep, exactly. Okay, so we talked about statistics early on in this conversation. and. While statistics are, are helpful with collecting data and assessing the needs of your organization, how can HR shift like data collection, especially in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion information to operate from a more like people first point of view? Yeah, because I think, you know, we talked about self-ID and the ability to share a diagnosis. Those types of statistics are important. It's important that they remain confidential. And I think maybe what I'm hearing is, what do you do with that information? Yes. Yeah. I think showing that while you're surveying biannually or annually, showing the plan to employees, like what are you doing with this information? We're not just using it for a DE&I report to show how diverse we are. That's great, but that's just the first step. You know, how are you responding and reacting to the information? So it's not just viewed as data collection, because if it is, you're not going to get the best data. The trust isn't going to be there from employees. So being transparent throughout the organization on why you're collecting the data, you know, creating that trust that it's secure and confidential, and then transparently providing the plan on where you're hitting it, the mark, and where you're missing the mark, and what your plan is to change it. That last step is what is really, I think, in some organizations needing work is we're not here to check boxes. Like if you don't want employees to clock in and out, don't check boxes, right? We're all in it together trying to do the best work we can. So being transparent and making it a collaborative community effort by being transparent in what you're going to do and where you're falling short, that is going to build trust with employees. And I think we've harped back on this a million times in this conversation, just that that trust and that candor, like you said, is essential for an organization and a culture and for people in general. I agree. Yes. Yeah. So since this podcast airs on Fridays, I'm curious what you're looking forward to this weekend. 
Yeah, I love the weekends. <laughs> I have two kiddos. So I have a 12-year-old oh. and a seven-year-old. She's just turned seven girls. And then my husband is from Denmark. So his sister is actually in town. She just flew in. Oh, that's so cool. And we are going to go have a fun weekend together, hiking, going to some of the lakes here in Minneapolis, and just spending time with a family member we only get to see once a year. So really excited. Family time is my favorite time. Oh my gosh, that sounds so nice. I'm so glad that your sister-in-law is able to visit. And I hope this weekend just has perfect weather for all your outdoor trips and stuff. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Of course. And Melissa, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Maddie, for having me. Again, I'm Maddie Collins, and thank you for listening. Join us next Friday or whenever you need a work break.